Well, this series that we're in, as you know, is called Kingdom Culture, and we're uh, in the book of Matthew, and I would encourage you to turn there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and it's a series that is all about what the kingdom of God that, uh, is about, that Jesus is ushering in, that he's pointing to, that he is inviting us to live into as true disciples of him. And we're uh, coming to the end of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, from Matthew 5 to 7 is this famous teaching of Jesus that articulates so much of this kingdom culture. And then he continues to teach that throughout the book of Matthew, as we will see in the weeks and in the months ahead. And our text today, uh, which is verses 1 to 23 in, in chapter 7, is one that you might look at as a, a random collection of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And uh, sometimes we like to pull things together and try to make a, a summary of it in one way or another. And in many ways, we need to just let this text speak in the way that Jesus intended. And maybe if there's one thing that weaves these texts together, it's this idea that we are called to be true disciples. And it's sort of this rapid-fire teaching uh, that Jesus is giving of what it means to be a true disciple and a true follower of him in the kingdom. And the story that Brett just read uh, from Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan is a story that really captures so much of what Jesus is teaching about today. And we'll see that. So I'm going to start close to the end of the passage today and, and kind of begin with the end in mind. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 where Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And so here we see again uh, what we've talked about earlier and we've talked about throughout this series is that our actions matter. How we live in the kingdom matters. Doing the will of the Father matters. In fact, as Jesus said here, it has kingdom implications, whether we actually enter the kingdom or not. And so oftentimes we struggle with this binary kind of view of the kingdom, of this perspective of in or out, and yet that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to here. And not just in an eternal perspective, which is what we often think of it, but also in the here and now. Because as we know that the kingdom is both uh, now and it's also a future promise. It is yet to come. And so Jesus is saying that if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to get a sense of what the kingdom is like now, here is how you were called to live, obeying the will of the Father. And oftentimes this kind of language and this strong language that even Jesus has here is, it seems politically incorrect in our modern culture. And I get why we might even feel that way ourselves, especially in a world where it's all about acceptance and tolerance, even though we sometimes confuse what that word actually means. But, but we have a general, sometimes cultural theme of like, I'm okay, you're okay, uh, we're all okay. And as long as you live out your truth and everything is fine. And yet what we see here is Jesus is saying something very different. He's saying that we have a choice to make. He's saying not only does it have eternal consequences, but it has consequences for how we experience and enter the kingdom now. How we help others experience and enter the kingdom now also. And so we need to listen and respond to these expressions of what does it mean to be a true disciple. You know, we've often pointed to in this series about how Jesus fulfills what Moses promised. And there's many comparisons, and even in this Sermon on the Mount, similar to Moses coming down the mountain with the original law for the Hebrew people, there's many parallels between Moses and Jesus, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and the fulfillment of all that he taught. 
And so here again in this text, it's like Jesus is saying something similar to what Moses was even saying uh, to the people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, choose life, choose the kingdom, trust and follow me. And you may remember, if you go back into the Old Testament, what Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, and he's at this time where he's towards the end of leading his people, and they are just on kind of the precipice of entering the promised land, and he's in his final address to them, and he says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20. He says, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses, and now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. And you can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. Kind of sounds like Jesus. What Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And how Jesus is bringing the promised land to fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And how the promised land is actually Jesus. And a life in obedience and following him. And so the kingdom culture of Jesus is one that leads to life, to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to purity, to freedom, and all these things that God longs for us. And when we reject this path in our choices, whether it's in how we view and steward our money, like we talked about in chapter 6, or how we treat people and handle relationships, even as it talks about here today, it leads to this path of destruction, and it might not be right away, it might not be immediate, but it, it, it eventually leads us there to a destructive path is what Jesus is pointing to. And this is why he's wanting us to experience the kingdom, both here and now and into eternity. And so how you live matters. The choices that you make matter. And so if we go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus begins with how a true disciple is to make moral judgments. And let's read verses 1 to 5. He says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And again, this is a text that I know many like to quote in some form, and we hear it in the world often, and oftentimes when we have this distorted view of what tolerance actually is. But what Jesus isn't saying, that people often attribute this to, is that we aren't to make any moral judgments at all, that we aren't supposed to deal with the speck in our friend's eye. Um, but that's actually not what he's saying. He actually says we do need to deal with the speck in our friend's eye, but we need to change our posture first. And we've already seen, as we've gone so far into Matthew already, that, that how we live as human beings, uh, God cares about. That Jesus has a deep concern for how it is that we live in relationship with, we, with each other. And we have to differentiate between moral discernment and personal condemnation. And he's saying in this text that we shouldn't stand in this posture of condemning people. Uh, that you were condemned by God in one way or another. He's saying that is not the posture that we are to have. That is not the things that we are to say. We don't sit in this kind of judgment, but rather that we act with mercy towards other people with discernment. And so moral discernment is good and necessary in our kingdom culture. In fact, it actually shows genuine love and friendship. 
as true disciples seek to help others. And so again, Jesus doesn't say, you know, to not take out the splinter or the speck from the eye of your friend. He simply says, before you go and actually try to help your friend with this speck in their eye, why not look inward first? Why not deal with some of the things in your own life? Why not deal with the plank that is there in your own eye first? Because what it'll do, it will cause you to actually have repentance and humility. And it'll completely change how you actually walk with a friend. And so what Jesus does here is he leads us to a posture of humility and self-judgment first. That leads to reflecting on our own lives, leads to our own repentance, which then leads to the right posture, this posture of humility and love to treat other sinners with mercy because we're recognizing that we ourselves are sinner, sinners also. And so this then creates a culture not of condemnation, but a culture of humility and love, even when we disagree. And so Jesus is keeping us out of the modern cultural ditch of not making any judgments on truth or how other Christ followers should live because it matters. And so he's not promoting a kingdom culture of blanket acceptance of sin or moral indifference. But he's also keeping us out of the other ditch of the legalistic church culture ditch where we are so quickly offended by and condemning the sins of other believers. And you know, some people uh, have been understandably repulsed by some aspects of the Christian faith. Because the reality is that at times, at the lowest times of church culture, we have a tendency to eat our own. And oftentimes, the further another person's sin is from our own personal struggles, the more judgmental and the more condemning we can actually become. And so we see in this text and we see in the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in that, that it's not about moral indifference. It's actually about self-awareness, which leads to other awareness, which is shaped by God-awareness, as Scott McKnight says. And so true disciples don't gloss over sin, but they deal with it directly with humility and with grace. And then in the next section that we go to, Jesus moves on and he starts to talk about prayer and how we should view God when we pray. And he says in verse 7, Keep on asking and you will see what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will, you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receive, receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. He says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. And so you sinful people, how much, uh, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? And so what does our prayer life reveal about how we view God, how we think about God? Some have said that how we think about God is the most important thing about us. And oftentimes it is revealed in our prayer life. And so in verses 7 to 11, Jesus helps us to see that true disciples are motivated in prayer by God's goodness. And that characteristic of God and his goodness towards us. And so Jesus anchors our persistence in prayer in that very thing. That God is a God who is good. And so we need to pray with this posture that God loves us, that he wants to give us good gifts. And just like a loving parent, he won't give us these awful things like in the example. And so this text motivates us to pray. Because, see, guilt will never motivate us to pray. 
But it's when we have this picture and understanding of God and a God who is good and who loves us so deeply and more profoundly than we'd ever understand, that actually is what motivates us to pray, and that's what he's calling us to do. So instead of using guilt to motivate, we need to cast a compelling vision of the goodness of our Father. When we know that goodness, when we know that extravagant love for us, and we start to truly embrace and understand those things, it motivates us to pray. N.T. Wright said it this way. He said, for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is, is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. And so, you know, our, our prayer life reveals actually our theology. And our theology shapes how we pray. And so how we think about God greatly impra- impacts our prayer. And so this is the challenge for us. And oftentimes, we, we might be so skeptical about prayer that we just try to figure things out on our own and we just deal things with things ourselves. And even if we maybe believe in God, we might see him as distant and uncaring. Or if we are believing and praying people, we might still wonder if our persistence in prayer actually matters. Does it actually make a difference, we wonder? We wonder if God is moved at all by our prayers. And so the teaching here is to see that at the very core of our theology, our very understanding of God needs to be this overwhelming idea of God's goodness. And so Jesus is referencing the normal, right love of a parent who wants to give good things to their kids. And so true disciples in the kingdom have a faith in a God who is good. In Hebrews 11, and the way Eugene Peterson phrases it in the message is a powerful reminder of this. It says this, It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. So not only do we need to believe that God exists, we actually have to believe that he cares enough to respond. And so this kind of faith motivates our prayer. And then Jesus comes to what is known as the golden rule. And it's a It's a passage, and it's a a rule that we've often heard of in our society in different ways. Uh, Even people who didn't grow up in the church, they've heard of this, they understand it. It's taught in many different places. People quote it to their kids. People quote it to coworkers, family members, friends. It seems to have this universal application. And in fact, it's even taught in secular leadership courses oftentimes. And it's this idea that true disciples treat others the way they themselves want to be treated. And so Jesus boils the gospel down to this one thing, similar to a variation of the Jesus Creed, where he says, that, you know, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this in Matthew 7, 12, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So he brings the law to its fulfillment in its innermost essence. And it's modeled even in that story that we just heard again this morning of the Good Samaritan. And so again, Jesus does not abolish the law, but he establishes its core essence. You know, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had this tendency to have this multiplication approach. Uh, They would just keep adding more laws because they thought if they just add more things, it'll become clearer and people can understand it better and live it out better. So they they added like over 600 different laws in addition to all of the Hebrew law. Jesus, on the other hand, went the other way. He did the reduction model, reducing the law to its very core, to the very essential things. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this sums up 
all 600 of those extra laws that you've added, including all the Hebrew law and everything that the prophets spoke about. I mean, that is, that is concentrated teaching. And as his followers were to love their neighbors, as they would love themselves, they were also to do to others what they would want others to do to them. So again, as Scott McKnight says, he says, this principle is neither selfish nor narcissistic, but expansive. We are to extend our self-care to other people. You know, the golden rule is maybe one of the most potent political weapons that we as Christians have today. Because empathy is at, at the base of it. And again, it leads to this measured humility in terms of how we treat other people around us. And then in verse 13 and 14, Jesus helps us to see that true disciples choose the narrow gate and the difficult road. He says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and over only a few ever find it. You know, gates were the entrances to cities. Uh, gates were the places where people met and debated things, whether it was politics or theology or significant things that were happening in the city. And so gates had a, a deep set of meeting. They were the entry point to uh, much of life. And so Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved, and they will come and go freely and find good pastures when he's teaching about being the good shepherd. And he references himself as the gate. And here he talks about the gate is narrow. And it's narrow because it's a gate to demanding discipleship. In essence, the narrow gate is to follow Jesus by learning to live by the Jesus creed and by the golden rule. And so, in many ways, it's, it's far simpler, but it's also far more demanding. And so paths and roads, they, they lead somewhere. So obviously the path that you're on, the path that your life is on, the choices that you're making each and every day, they, they lead somewhere. And so Jesus is asking each one of us to examine that path and say, where is that path leading to? And he gives this stark contrast and he says, one road leads to a life of destruction and hell and the other road leads to true life, both now and also in the life to come. And so our moral lives matter. And again, sometimes as much as we cringe, and myself included, at this sort of in and out language, and how is it that we are to think about this? Jesus is clearly teaching and saying that. He's not saying, well, it's more or less like living in this lifestyle of the kingdom, but he's saying there are two options, really. There is the saved and the lost. You're in the kingdom or not, and you need to make a choice. And it's reflected in how you live. And so every day we are making choices. Is this a kingdom choice, or is this a road that leads to a path of destruction? And so our choices and how we live on a daily basis matter in the here and now. They make a huge difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those that are all around us. And then lastly, true disciples will bear out good fruit. Jesus says to watch out for the false prophets. He says that you'll know the true essence of a tree by the fruit that is produced. And in a similar way, the disciples of Jesus will be evidenced by the fruit that comes out of their lives. If you look at the fruit in their lives, you will see whether or not they are true disciples. And so you get a sense that the false prophets are, at times, these gifted leaders who might exercise all kinds of gifts of the Spirit, but how they flounder in following Jesus in doing God's will in the everydayness of life, making bad choices and producing bad fruit. And so he says in verse 20, yes, 
Just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So again, we need to understand that we are saved by faith. But we are judged by our works. And so our works matter. The fruit of our lives matter. Doing the will of God matters. And we see here in Jesus' teaching uh, that that is so pointedly taught. His brother James, when he wrote his letter to the churches in the book of James, he taught the very same things, that our works matter so intimately. The apostle Paul, you can't help but reading his, his letters to the churches, and you hear this high call of discipleship in terms of how we are to live our lives. And it's a radical call to faith and a radical call to a different kind of love. Jesus said himself in John chapter 13 in that beautiful text where he was washing his disciples' feet and he was putting forward a whole new ethic. And he said, now I'm giving you a new commandment, he says. He says, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so when Jesus boils down and synthesizes so many of these Old Testament laws and he's bringing them to fulfillment in this kingdom of God that is about him, that he is the gateway. He calls each one of us as disciples to a very radical, extravagant love that is really simple to do, but it's very demanding. And how do we love other people in the way that Jesus loved us? And so in summary, as we look at our text from today, we might say it this way. True disciples don't gloss over sin, but they deal with it directly with humility and grace. True disciples are motivated to pray because of God's goodness. True disciples treat others the way they themselves want to be treated. True disciples choose the narrow gate and the difficult road, the road of extravagant love. And true disciples will bear out and be known by their good fruit. I'd invite the worship team if they would come up. And they're going to lead us in an ongoing response of singing. But the challenge to each one of us today is not just to respond in our words that we sing or the words that we say, but to respond with our lives and the choices that we make on a daily basis. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your extravagant love for us. And that is no more evident than sending your Son to die for our sins. And Lord, that is a radical love that we can't fully understand or comprehend, but we receive it and we just give you thanks. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to know and reflect on what does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus today. And God, that you would show and reveal in my life and in each one of our lives places where we have kind of walked away or maybe walked down the path of compromise or the path that eventually leads to destruction. And God, would you help us to walk in your ways, to trust you and to follow you. And Lord, help us to be a part of this kingdom culture that is a radical culture of love that also does not compromise truth. And so Lord, you did that so perfectly and we struggle in that in our humanness. We just confess that. But as a church and as individual people, Lord, we pray that you would help us to find our way in that. We pray this in Jesus' name.